Good morning and Merry Christmas Eve. So this is like a holiday all in itself, becoming. So you have a gift you may open up today, Christmas Eve traditions, and then you have Christmas Day, which is tomorrow. But you understand that you still have time to buy your gifts. So you have all afternoon, Walmart is open. It's not too late, don't feel embarrassed. If you haven't picked out the card, you can go right in, get everything. You may have to wait in line though, so lines are long today, maybe, I don't know. I've already got my gifts, but if you haven't gotten yours, just go get it. You know, there's a, um, I read an article, actually my daughter told me about it, then I looked it up myself. There was a, you might have seen it, but there was an In-N-Out burger that opened up in Meridian, Idaho, about two weeks ago. And the line, the drive-through line to go to an In-N-Out burger when that thing opened up was eight hours. Now, <clears throat> while you're waiting in a line for eight hours to get a burger, do you have to go get another burger? <laughs> like at Burger King, which doesn't have a line next door, and then come back and get in line, and then eight hours. Look, In-N-Out burger's good, but it ain't that good. That is for sure. So hopefully um, you're not waiting in a line for eight hours today. We are going to read our scripture. Uh, CF has been in John um, for a little while and has got to verse 14. He's been talking about 114 for the last several weeks, and, and he's actually come down to Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and talking about the, uh, the birth of Christ. And really, as it is uh, uh, expressed here in verse 14. So I'm going to read verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if there's, there's hardly another verse in Scripture that expresses what we celebrate at Christmas than this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for loving us and providing for us, giving us the opportunity to celebrate your birth, coming to this earth as a man to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, that you may be our Savior for eternity. And Lord, I pray that we will just see you as you are as much as we can to, to behold your glory uh, that we have no deserving of, that we, we do not deserve any of that grace and any of that glory that you bestow upon us. And Lord, I thank you for your love for us, and I pray for CF and your truth to be spoken through him this morning. And we say this in your name, amen. Good morning. Merry Christmas to everyone. Good to have you here with us. And uh, one service today, so I hope you didn't come at 8.30 expecting a service, but uh, no Sunday school, nothing like that. And the same thing next week, next week being New Year's Eve, we're going to go with one service, and then beginning on the 7th, we'll come back to the regular uh, routine rotation, okay? So it's good to see those that are here. Good to have you with us. As he said, we're going to look at verse 14. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the Gospel of John, uh, actually since February, and we're on this verse here. When I got on it, we spent, or I spent four weeks on it, kind of like a Christmas Advent thing leading up to it to explain it more fully. And today we're going to take a look at that verse, and, uh, which is really the Christmas story. The Word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll begin. Father God, we come before your throne of grace, thanking you, Lord, for this day and for this opportunity. Pray for our time here together. Pray for your divine direction and insight. Grant us understanding, comprehension. Direct me as I teach. Keep me from error. Help me to rightly divide your word of truth and explain it clearly and accurately. And we ask and pray this of you in Christ's name, Lord. Amen. Begins here, he says, and the word became flesh. He's continuing what he's already said. And what has he said? He has said that the word is eternal. That the word, the logos, the full expression of God is eternal. Back in verse 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's preexistent. He's always been there. He also created everything. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then he talks about his rejection in 9 through 11. Then he talks about those that receive him in verses 12 and 13. And then we get here, and he says, and the word became flesh. Very important to understand that when he says became flesh, what he is saying is the word was not made flesh. The word became flesh. He did not come into existence at that time. He's the preexistent God. And when he became flesh, what he did is he took on a human body. He took on full human nature is what he took on. Uh, it says the word became flesh. And it says back in verse one in the beginning. And I told you before that was in the imperfect tense which means it's just, it's eternal is what he's talking about. And so at this point in time, that which is infinite becomes finite. God comes in a human body. When I say takes on full human nature, it's full human nature without sin. All right. He was unique birth, one of a kind birth. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But he came to dwell among men and, and God had promised all down through time that he would dwell with men, that he would be with man. There are over nine times in the Old Testament he says that. Two times in the Old Testament it speaks of his name being Emmanuel. One time in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew in 123, says you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so God has made this promise to mankind all down through time. And according to Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son into the world. When, it, when the timing was just right, he came into the world. And that's what John is telling us here, that the word, the eternal God became flesh, became a man. And what did he do? He dwelt among us. To dwell, the word that is used here means to reside. Literally what it means is to put up a tent is what it means. If you look the word skidua up, it means to put on a tent or to put a tent up. And it's a reflection back to the time of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. If you remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that's where God dwelt among people. He dwelt in the tabernacle. Then later there was a temple built and he came and he dwelt in the temple. Yet again, he's with man. But he's not fully with man because the only one that could come close to him would be the high priest. And that was once a year. But you see how God's moving in that direction. If you look back in your Bible at, 
at Exodus chapter 40. In Exodus chapter 40, it speaks about this, where he, where he abided in this tent. It's in verse 34, I'm sorry, Exodus 40, 34. It says, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Go back to our passage in John and what does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. When he came and he dwelt in this tent, the tent is a picture of a temporary abode. The tent is also a reference that's used in scripture for our bodies. Speaks of our bodies in much the same way. In 2 Corinthians 5, passage makes this comment here. I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5, and beginning in the first verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Paul speaking about uh, the future presence of Christ. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, meaning our body, if our body dies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up for life. Now, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, a certainty that he's going to complete the work. Therefore, we're confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, meaning we're not physically in his presence. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. But twice in that passage, go back to John, he makes reference to our body as being a tent. And that's exactly what this passage says about Jesus. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched this tent among us. Christ was with us. Christ was among us is what he is saying. In his flesh, his flesh simply veiled his glory and that is God with man is what it's a picture of. It's God dwelling with man. And he came and he dwelt among men. And John says, we beheld his glory. Who is the we here? The we here is the apostle John and early believers. The we beheld his glory, meaning they fixed upon his glory and they recognized his glory. Uh, when they looked upon him. So when Jesus came and was born on Christmas Day, born in that stable, he really stayed hidden for about 30 years. And he grew up in the city of Nazareth. And then he launched his ministry when he went and saw John the Baptist and was baptized in the River Jordan. And the Spirit of God came and descended upon him. And John officially announced, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He began his earthly ministry. But, to, but John says, we beheld his glory. Uh, the word glory is the word doxa, D-O-X-A. You've probably heard people say, uh, talk about singing the doxology. The doxa 
means glory. And what does it mean when we say God has glory? What it means is this. Glory is the sum of all the attributes of God. Glory is also a word, especially in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word glory is, uh, is from the root word havad, which means to be heavy, is what it means. So when we talk about glory of God, we talk about God being heavy, we talk about him manifesting his attributes, what does it mean to be heavy? It means to have authority or position. We use that term a lot in our day. You talk about somebody, you introduce them to someone and say, that dude's pretty heavy, man. And what that means, not talking about his body weight, talking about his position. When we talk about God and we say God has glory, what we're saying is he has authority, he has presence. He has a position of all authority. It's just used here in the New Testament. It's, it is the sum total of all of his attributes. And, and John says, we beheld his glory. Now, how do they behold the glory of God if it's veiled in flesh? If his glory was veiled in flesh, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in that tabernacle and that dwelt in that temple is now in a human body. Because the Shekinah glory was the visible presence of God among the people. When that high priest went into that uh, temple to minister, back in the back of the temple was the, what we called the Holy of Holies. And the only person that could enter that was the high priest. And then he could only enter it one time a year, and he could only enter it once he had made atonement for his own sin. But in that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was set beneath two cherubim, two angels, who arced over that, that Ark of the Covenant. And right above their wings, or between their wings, was a bright light that glowed, and that was the physical, visible presence of God among the people. It was to signify God's presence in the temple as he was there. And that priest would go back there and put blood onto that mercy seat, which sat on top of that little box, to atone for the sins of the people. And so it's a picture of God meeting the need of mankind by being in their presence. But he's very veiled in his presence. He's very difficult to come to. The average person on the street never got to see that, just the high priest did. And then he only got to see it one time a year. So if John and the other disciples beheld his glory, how did they behold his glory? They beheld his glory when they saw him open the eyes of blind people. They beheld his glory when he caused the lame to walk. They beheld his glory when he walked on the water. They beheld his glory when he fed the people. They beheld his glory when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They beheld his glory when he went to the cross and courageously faced death and took on sin that wasn't his, but became a substitute for mankind. We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory when he died and the earth was darkened. And he was buried in a tomb, and then we beheld his glory when he rose from that grave. John saw all that. He was a witness to that. And so he says, we beheld his glory. And what you see is you see flashes of God's glory as he ministered in a human body. As he went about, as he spoke, people would hear him speak, and they said, there's no man spoke like this before. They knew he was different. They knew he was unique. They knew he was special. 
because they'd be held as glory. And his glory flashed before them to show that he was God. And he was God in a human body. See, as the God-man, the one and unique, he is 100% man without sin. And he's 100% God, an undiminished deity in one person. He's unique. And so John speaks of that as he, as he talks about him in this passage. He says, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. That word begotten doesn't mean that he was created or that he was made. A lot of times we hear the, the word begotten and we think that it means something is made. And that's not what the word means. When it speaks of Christ and it says only begotten, what, it is, what, it, what the word is, is monogenes, is the word. It's a compound word. Mono meaning one and genos, G-E-N-O-S, meaning birth. Because genos comes from the word genomai, which means to come into uh, existence, to become. And so he became a man. His body was clothed upon him. Monogenos is what it's saying is one of a kind, the only one. There's only been one that is begotten of God, and that is the son of God, who is eternal God, who takes on a human body. He is the begotten of God. And that title is used quite often throughout Scripture in reference to the person of Christ. Probably one of the most popular verses you know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That only begotten son means one and unique of a kind. There's never been another one like it. There's only one, monogenes, one of a kind son given to mankind. He is unique and special, and, and there is only one that is given. It says he is full of grace and truth, and that speaks of his character. Grace meaning favor to the guilty or unmerited favor to the guilty. God's grace. That same word grace there is translated loving kindness quite often in the Old Testament to describe God, that God has loving kindness toward his people. It's because of his grace that we can come into his presence because we're sinful people. How does a sinful person come into the presence of God? By the grace of God. How does a sinful person find favor with God? By the grace of God. And it's God's grace, unmerited favor. God simply pours his grace out upon you and me. He shows favor to us. Now, how has he shown favor to us? He's shown favor to me because the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. See, Christ died for me and I had nothing to offer God. I was an affront to God. I was an enemy of God, according to scripture. And God came to me with his grace and he demonstrated his love. So his grace is his unmerited favor. The word there for truth, aletheia, is an alpha privative in front of the word lanthano, and lanthano means something that is concealed. So when you put an alpha privative, it means that which was concealed is now revealed. The truth, he reveals the truth. The truth was hidden, and God brings the truth to mankind. Kind of like when you go into a court and you raise your hand, and the guy that swears you in 
says, put your hand on the Bible and repeat after me. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. What you're promising is, I'm going to reveal something that you don't yet know. That's what, it, that's what revealing the truth means. So when Jesus came into the world, what does Jesus do? He reveals the truth about God. Not the truth of God as revealed through the religious leaders of his day, but the truth of God from one that came from the very throne of God. He revealed God to mankind. And when he revealed God to mankind, he showed and he demonstrated to mankind, this God is different than what you think he is. Because he confused them. Whenever he would demonstrate his glory, they would accuse him of something. They said, well, you can't do that. He was breaking all the man-made rules that existed. He was revealing truth. He was bringing forth truth. He was showing himself to be real and authentic before the people because he is a God full of grace and truth. And John says, we beheld that. We saw that glory. We recognize that glory. It was God revealing himself to mankind. Even better, go down to verse 18 of John 1. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, there's that word again, unique, one-of-a-kind son who is in the bosom of the Father. How was he in the bosom of the Father? Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. So he was in the bosom of the Father. It says he has declared him. He has declared him. He has exegeted him. He has explained him. He has demonstrated him. And when you look at the life of Christ, you see Christ ministering. What you see is the reality of God. You see the reality of the person of God and God's action and reaction towards man. What's he reveal about himself? He reveals that he is a God full of grace and truth. And that's what Christ did at the incarnation. He came to live among men. God living among man. And he will always be among man. That is so unique and special. And so God lives within us now. And one day we will see him in all of his glory when we come into his presence in heaven. When we get this new and glorified body, when we're resurrected from the grave and we go into his presence with that new and glorified body, we will see him. And that's the promise of Christmas. The promise of Christmas is that God is not some hidden deity that you need to be shrinking in fear of or be horrified of. He is a God full of grace and truth that came and initiated action towards mankind. It was not man coming to God. It was God coming to man. It was God coming to reveal himself to man, to show man how man could have a pathway to him. Because man doesn't automatically have a pathway with God. Because we are sinful. And because of our sinfulness, we're separated from God. Our, our sinfulness prevents God from being in relationship with us. He's in a relationship with us in a general sense as creator because the scripture says he sends a rain on the just and the unjust. And God superintends over the lives of his people. And he moves and, and operates within our existence, but we don't have a relationship with him. God seems as something far off. And we try to understand God. And we try to explain God. But apart from the true revelation of scripture, no man can explain God. God must explain himself. 
Because every time man explains God, he will explain God to be some sort of a man. But when God explains himself, he says, I am that I am. I am holy. I'm separate. And what does that mean? It means we're cut off from him. The word holy means to be cut, to be separate. God's separate from mankind. But what happens in incarnation? God comes to live with man. He comes to dwell with man. And he comes to dwell with man to deal with what man had that he can't deal with. And that's his sin. And so God sends Jesus and Jesus is born as a Jew, as a Jewish male, lives under the law, keeps all 613 commandments of the law, which are summarized in the Ten Commandments, keeps them perfectly. And then he goes to the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice for God because the sacrifice had to be without spot or blemish. So he goes as the only acceptable sacrifice. And it's better than the Old Testament sacrifices because if, if this podium here is the cross and this is the Old Testament, all those lambs leading up this time were types to point to the reality that would come. And you and I stand on this side and we look back not at a Jesus on the cross, but a Jesus that is raised from the dead, a Jesus that has defeated sin. And we believe upon him and when we believe upon him, God brings our human spirit alive and God's spirit comes to reside within us. And therefore, it's not just God dwelling among us, it's God in us. And one day we will be with God in heaven for all eternity. That's the significance of Christmas is that Jesus opens the doorway to where sinful man can have a relationship with holy God. And the way I have a relationship with holy God is at the cross, what does he do? He takes away my sin, making me neutral in relationship to God, but I still don't have the same glory as God. And to come into his presence, you've got to be equal in glory. Now, I can't produce that glory, so what does God do? He imputes that righteousness to my account. He imputes his righteousness to me, thus enabling me to stand in the very presence of God. That's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Pros, face to face with him. And I can be there not because I lived a good life or was a good person, but because Jesus Christ's righteousness was imputed to my account. And I walk into the presence of God with the same righteousness as God because of the person of Christ. That's what it means for God to dwell among us. That's what it means for him to reveal his glory, to show all that he is. A God full of grace and truth, full of mercy and compassion towards his people. And folks, that's the true Christmas story. The true Christmas story is that God dwells among his people. He pitched his tent, put on a human body and lived a sinless life to pay the debt for mankind. That's the true gospel story that he lived, that he died for our sin as a substitute, was buried and rose again. And he says, you believe on that, you will have eternal life. That is the glory of Christmas. And we beheld his glory. How do you and I behold his glory? We behold his glory as we see him revealed through the scripture here. We see his glory as he works in our heart. We see his glory as he works in our life. And we see his glory as he works in the lives of other people. People's lives who are destroyed, hopeless. God can pick up. And he breathes the breath of life back into that person and makes them a new creation and they can live yet again. That's the beauty 
of the Christmas story. And that's the glory that Christ revealed to mankind. And that's the God that we worship. And we worship him every day. Merry Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your glory and for your greatness, for your love toward us, that you are a God full of grace and truth. And we reflect at this time of the year upon the birth of our Lord and Savior and what that truly means to us. And we are truly grateful to you for that. And we sing praises and we honor you for that, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Father, let us reflect this time of the year and look back, but look forward to you and to all that you are for us and all that you've done for us, Father. For we are truly grateful to you. Father, I pray your blessings upon everyone here. Pray your blessings upon this body as a whole. Pray, God, for your will and purpose to be done in the hearts and lives of people. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. We pray this in Christ's name, Lord. Amen.